we are going to be starting a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I will stand here confidently say that I'm scared out of my wits to preach through 1 Corinthians. Uh, many of you have read 1 Corinthians, and you know that it is not a light and shallow book, but it deals with a lot of issues, uh, and a lot of issues that are still present today, and I would argue probably more present today, uh, and we will get to that. So, uh, But it's also a book that is filled with beauty and gospel messages to help organize the local church, and the overarching theme of all the 1 Corinthians is unity. And that is my prayer for our church today, that as we wade into the deep waters of 1 Corinthians, that we would be coming out the other side, a united church. Amen? So we are going to be camping out in verses 1, 1 to 9 in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's, it's a very encouraging and hopeful uh, part of the book. So if you have your Bibles, we will begin reading there. And if not, it will be on the screen for you. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen? So Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is like a calm, clear voice that is speaking in the midst of chaos. Maybe as you focus on our current situation in the world, it feels a little bit chaotic, right? And this gospel message that is full in Corinthians is like a clear, calm voice that cuts through all of that chaos. Things at the Corinthian church are in turmoil, and Paul sets up the gospel like a lighthouse in the midst of darkness, in the midst of troubled storms, to guide the Corinthian church through their problems. You can just kind of picture that. Just chaotic waters crashing upon the lighthouse, and the gospel is shining brightly, bringing sailors home to the good news. And this is kind of how the book of 1 Corinthians is used. For Paul, the gospel... The gospel message is that clear, calm voice. Not Paul, not his words, but the gospel of Jesus Christ cuts through the chaotic noise that is surrounding the Corinthian church and has infiltrated the Corinthian church. So let me tell you a little bit about this church to help set up this series going forward. Paul planted this church on his first missionary journey. If you remember back last year when we were preaching through the book of Acts, we looked at Acts 18, and in Acts 18, you can read it later, is detailing the birth of the Corinthian church. God moved mightily in Corinth. And Corinth was one of the most up-and-coming cities in the Roman Empire, one of the richest cities 
cities in the Roman Empire. It had a beautiful port that turned the city of Corinth into an economic powerhouse and a vacation destination. It attracted young and upworldly mobile people over the empire. If it was today, Apple and Amazon and Google would be building their locations there. Uh, and, and it was a big deal. It was a cosmopolitan, young, rich, and very diverse city. And it boasted scores of temples to Greek and Roman gods in the architecture. If you ever get a chance to travel that part of the world, I have not yet. But it's just astounding even what's left Paul had lived in Corinth for about, uh, about a year and a half and led a bunch of young Corinthians to Christ. He loved this church, and Corinth actually represented in the early stages some of Paul's best work, and he felt really close to these people. But after he left, Paul started to get reports of this young church that it wasn't doing very well. He started seeing and hearing negative reports that pulled on his pastoral heart. And it pulled on his heart in five areas. First, it was pulling on his heart because there was divisions in the body. There was fractions. There were tribes. We'll see this next week. Paul's going to deal with this problem actually from chapters 1 all the way to chapters 4. Second, they had uh, sex and romance confusion, just to put it lightly. We're going to get there. It's going to be a crazy part of Corinthians. But it, well, to put it lightly for now, it was confusion. I guess that's, though, what you would expect of a city just full of young adults, right? Uh, and uh, they were just going crazy, and it was happening also in the church. And a lot of the church members, since it was so normal in the culture, they were going well, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. Is it really that much of a sin? Come on, Paul, get with the times. This is, this is like 10 AD, man. Like, you know, let, no, it was a little later than that. But, uh, you know, like, let's be a little more modern here, okay? And uh, so the, the church was not seeing a big deal with it. So in chapters 5 to 7, Paul's going to deal a lot of truth about sex, about the sanctity of marriage, singleness, and even divorce. Third, there was acrimony over differences of conviction on what Christians were and were not allowed to do, specifically whether they would eat meat that had been offered to idols. Now, I know that's not really a big pulling tug on your heart. Like when you go to Friesen Bros, you're not worried that they're sacrificing it to a different idol today. Um, but but it, it, so it doesn't seem super relevant, but it is. Because what we're going to see in these chapters is Paul's going to lay out for us as a church gospel-based principles to show us how we deal with each other's differences of conviction. Like how we approach politics. That's a fun one. Right? How, well, on the differences of the best way to educate our children. Uh, should we uh, 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 homeschool them? Put them into the Catholic system? Put them into the public system? It's going to give us all these ways, whether we drink alcohol or not. And can we be friends with other Christians who do? And I hope you can be. Right? <laughs> and we'll see all of that in chapters 9 to 10. A gospel-based principle on how we deal with each other's differences of conviction. Fourth, it pulled on his heart because there was just chaos in the services at Corinth. People were interrupting the, interrupting the church service out of nowhere, saying, the Holy Spirit has laid something on my heart, I need to share it. If any of you were at that movie the other night, right, when the guy stands up, he's like, somebody needs to be healed, and he's disrupting the whole service. That's kind of what was going on, but all the time by many people. And if the pastor, the elder, wasn't acknowledging those people, those groups that were getting the words from God, started saying, well, that pastor's not qualified for ministry because he's quenching the spirit. 
Oh, they love to use that one. Oh, you just got to let the spirit lead, man. Okay. (laughs) And a lot of people were shouting out in tongues, and it felt like a madhouse. So in chapters 11 to 14, Paul is going to lay out some guidelines for how we let the Holy Spirit work in the church. Because we can easily say, well, you just got to let the Spirit lead. Well, what does that even mean? And a lot of times they say that because they actually don't know what it means. And we're going to actually learn what it means to let the Spirit lead. And we're going to work as a church to allow him to do that. Amen? Fifth. Uh, there were some saying that the resurrection of Jesus and his other miracles were not that important. They were putting more greater emphasis on the fact of what Jesus taught and lived. That's a really big thing today, too. We just got to model Jesus. He was a great teacher. He wasn't really God, but he was a great model that we need to follow. So in chapter 15, Paul's going to explain why the resurrection, the, the, the actual physical bodily resurrection, is everything to the Christian life. Not secondary. It is the the pinnacle of Christian theology. If you lose the re- resurrection, you lose Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise, you're just fools for sitting in this chair and listening to this guy scream at you. Thank you. So, in discussing each of these problems, Paul is going to follow a pattern. He defines the problem and then he leads us to see that problem through gospel lenses, putting on the gospel. If you want to get your mind around Paul's basic teaching strategy in any of his letters, be it 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, 1st, 2nd Timothy, any of his letters that he has written, he follows a very similar pattern in all his writings, and it's this that Uh, You take whatever is broken in your spiritual life, you apply the gospel to it because faith in the gospel is the cure regardless of the sickness. Amen? Like that's a lifetime of theology in one little sentence. Take whatever's broken in your spiritual life, apply the gospel to it because faith in the gospel, church, is the cure regardless of the sickness that you're battling with. The gospel is the truth that all of us stand hopelessly condemned before a thrice holy God. And in his grace, he came, clothed himself in flesh. He took on true humility that, 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 our, uh, that uh, Harv was pulling out for us. And he clothed himself in flesh and he died for our sin. And instead of making us work for it, now he offers eternal life as a free gift to all those who will receive it humbly by faith. And going deeper into the message of the gospel is the answer for just about, not just about, everything. It is the answer for everything in the Christian life. And it's easy for us as a modern church to look backwards and point our finger at the Corinthian church and look at all the negative things and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not a part of a church like that. But if we're really being honest with ourselves, the Corinthian church is not much different than our church here today. For example, do we sometimes have divisions in our church? And you're probably going, no, no, not Fellowship Baptist church members. They agree on everything. Well, clearly you haven't been in a life group, right? (laughs) Clearly, you haven't watched the social media of some of the other people you're sitting next to in this church. We don't agree on everything. And I'm not talking about small disagreements like, you know, do we go to KFC or McDonald's? Which one's better? Are tacos greater than hamburgers? Yes, they are. Um, right? Which way, which way do you put on a toilet paper roll? Do you give it a mullet or do you pull it from the front? Which way do you do it? Huh? Huh? 
Okay, see, we're, we're, not, we're, we're, we're clearly divided. But I'm not talking about those small disagreements. I'm talking about major, big theological disagreements that we sometimes can't find common ground in. And the overarching theme of 1 Corinthians is unity within the church. And it begs the question that as we aim, that we'll aim to answer this question, that is true biblical Christian unity possible within a modern-day local church, or is it just a pipe dream that we will never reach? And we'll answer that question. But what about sexual sin? What about sexual confusion? Is that present in our church today? What about questions about singleness and divorce? Do some of us have questions about the Holy Spirit's role in the church and how we should follow him? Do we have people who are here who question Christianity's miraculous claims? The answer is yes to all, because I've received all those questions as your pastor. Just because you don't struggle with something personally doesn't mean it's not present within our walls. And we need to aim to be faithful stewards of the truth and answer these questions because they are written in God's word. My preference, who cares about that? Who cares about my, my stuff? God's word is what matters. And it has answers that stand timelessly throughout generations. So now some of you look at me and go, man, divisions, gossip, sexual sin, charisma, uh, charismatic chaos. Corinth sounds like a pretty jacked up church. Now you're going to stand before me, pastor, and say this church reminds you of the Corinthian church? And the answer is yes. But listen, it's not a bad yes. It's a good yes. Because any church that is actually reaching people has these types of problems. Because when you reach lost sheep, guess what? They come in smelling like the pasture. They come in smelling like sheep. And sometimes they leave little sheep poop all over the carpet and you step in it. And it smells. And it offends you. But I'll take those types of problems every day if it means that we are truly reaching people. Tim Keller says there are two types of problems that a church has. They have living problems. And living problems is the church is reaching unchurched people. Like we're not going and like setting up signs outside of other churches saying, hey, don't go to this one, come to ours. Like we're actually going into our community and reaching people who have not bowed their knee to Christ. And they come in and they bring all their issues. But guess what? If you're truly being honest, you bring in all your issues too. I bring in all my issues. We just like to spray perfume on our issues and make ourselves look holier than everyone else. Because a church that has living problems, guess what it does? It reaches across political lines. What do you mean not everybody in here is going to be a conservative? It wades through messy political discussions. It also reaches across ethnic boundaries. They have to wade through un uncomfortable cultural clashes. We reach across financial lines as well, and we have to discuss how the poor and the wealthy live together as equals, as the book of James shares with us. And the people you bring in don't always know how to talk and behave. You know what would be music to my ear, and you might fire me for this, and that's fine, is if in that lobby we heard some cuss words happening every once in a while. I'm serious. Like, we, we learn how to be, behave properly so we get rewarded in the church. But we can't expect non-believers who come in to act like us. And we shouldn't want them just to have behavior modification, like, hey, just stop swearing. You'll be good here. One day you'll be an elder. 
right? We want true character life transformation. And that, that is welcomed here. And as long as I'm here, that is encouraged here, that we reach out and bring in real people. And we accept them and point them to the gospel because the Holy Spirit will do the convicting. We don't need to. A lot of churches give the impression that they want to be a church that gets their hands dirty, for lack of better words. But it just stops that impression. Right? As soon as someone comes in that maybe rubs them the wrong way, maybe they're from a lower class in society, and they stick up their noses, and we don't reach people. But I actually want us to be a church that commits to getting down in the pasture, to getting dirty together, not just sitting around coffee tables and talking about what it might look like. Because that's a wasted church, and that's a wasted life. But I'll take living church problems all day, every day, if it means that we can avoid dying problems, which is the second issue Tim Keller says churches face. Churches with dying problems is a church for an example that everyone in the church is from the same political party, so there's no fights there. They're all from the same ethnicity, so there's no uncomfortable cultural clashes. Everybody is about from the same income level, so they think about money the same way. And the problem is a group of people who all look the same, think the same, act the same, and vote exactly the same is not a church. It is quickly a dying Christian country club. So, which kind of church do you want to be a part of, Fellowship Baptist Church? A church with living problems or a church with dying problems? I will take living problems all day, and if you're with me, say amen. 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 But before we get to all the issues brought up in the letter, it's important that we start right at the beginning and look at the heart for the Corinthians and his encouragement that Paul gives them. And this sets the tone for the entire letter. As we go into this letter that is going to hold a lot of uncomfortable subjects, we need to hold it with the first nine verses in mind. We need to receive this letter as a point of encouragement, not just focus on all the correction and bad stuff, because Paul wasn't just trying to hit them over the head with a bat. He was trying to call them and point them back to the gospel. And he's encouraged by their initial salvation. And so should we. We should look at this letter written out of love and not judgment. The Corinthian church reflects a lot of what the city of Corinth stood for, which is entitlement, which is why we name this series Unentitled, because we as Christians shouldn't be walking around as the most entitled people. And if you are big shot in your business or whatever and you come into this church, guess what? You are equal to the drug addict who gives his life to the Lord in this room and in this society in Christ's eyes. And you shouldn't treat them any different. So that's the mentality we need to have as we look at this church, that we want to fight against the entitlement that we see. Uh, we want to fight against the, this, this nonsense pleasure in business uh, uh, and, and this me-before-other mentality that was present both in Corinth and present also in the church. So Corinth was a growing city, as we said. It was the city that everybody wanted to live in. It was kind of like the New York or Los Angeles of the ancient world. And the Corinthian church, instead of living as exiles who went against the grain of society, they became more syncretistic and went with the flow of society. Or as I say, the church became more impacted by the world than the church impacting the world. 
And that's the problem. And we too are feeling those same pressures being pushed upon us as a church by our world. But I would actually argue that we have it worse off because it's not just one city. There's a monoculture that the internet has put together. Now kids who are raised in rural Saskatchewan have things in common with kids who are raised in India. It's called monoculture. And the internet is uniting the whole world. And guess what that invents? Mob mentality. And the world comes at you, your little tiny business, your little tiny church, in waves of accusations and hate from the world. You can see, if you watch online, uh, somebody will be treated bad in a gym in Los Angeles, and the whole world will start leaving negative Google reviews and get that place shut down. Why? Like, man, I live in Drumheller. Why do I care about a gym in Los Angeles? Because the internet brings about a mono-mob culture. So we have it harder, I believe, and we too are facing these pressures and we are forced to accept the cultural agendas of the day. And it's into this context, this chaos, that Paul has the occasion to speak. And he's, he's going to address Christians who are being forced to ask many of the same questions that we find ourselves asking as a church. Though the letter will go into some significant issues with the community, uh, Paul begins with a note of profound and surprising encouragement. And you might be thinking, Aaron, I've read 1 Corinthians, and when I think of churches that should receive encouragement from Paul, Corinthians is on the bottom of the list. And I understand that, because as I reflected upon these first nine verses and the encouragement at the beginning, I was shocked. I was like, man, I would have wrote this letter a whole lot different. I would have sent a single paragraph, okay? A theological drone strike that would aim to just blow their appalling behavior off the face of the earth. My letter would have looked something maybe like this. Aaron, called to be an apostle by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, stop now. Repent. Apologize. Change your ways and I might find it in my heart to talk to you again next winter. <laughs> Grace and peace be with you. Amen. <laughs> that would have been it. <laughs> but Paul does something very different and it tells us a lot. And the length of 1 Corinthians and the rhetorical care that it's written reveals how much Paul loves the Corinthians and wants to win them over. The depth of theological argument, even when addressing things that just seem obvious, like Christians shouldn't have sex with prostitutes. You just think that makes sense, but it doesn't in Corinth, okay? So it just highlights his desire for believers not to just share, uh, not just to change story their actions, but to understand why they should change their actions. His tender language displays his affection for them. The way he sandwiches teachings between sections on the cross in chapter 1 that we'll see and the resurrection in chapter 15 shows us for Paul, the gospel really is the beginning and the end of the Christian life. But it's in the opening paragraphs in verses 1 to 9 that provide the sharpest contrast by the way that I would have written the letter, just blustering my way, angry rant, uh, and the way that Paul and Sosthenes uh, uh, wrote this letter. And Sosthenes is mentioned there not as a co-author, but he's probably a scribe at this point in Paul's life. Paul was having trouble later on in life at writing, so he has scribes. There's other letters that Paul wrote that he mentions co-authors, but not with Sosthenes. He, so from now on, for the rest of this series, I'm going to refer to Paul as 
the author. But a few things leap off the page as we consider the first nine verses of Paul's encouragement, and I'll move through these quickly. We see that Paul encourages them in three areas, the truth of encouragement, uh, the tension of encouragement, and the basis of encouragement. And we're going to flesh out all three of these quite quickly. So encouragement, we'll deal with the first one, is a basic human need. Few people flourish without encouragement. In the absence of affirmation and approval, it is a hard life when you're just putting in the grind and nobody seems to notice. We want to be valued. We long for this as humans, to have someone say, hey, I approve of who you are. We want to be respected for the contributions that we make, for people not to just approve who we are, but to also approve of what we do. And we long deeply for insurance of the direction that we are heading, that our, the direction we're heading is one that is worthy of achievement and commitment for someone to approve where we are headed as worlds of wonder. Paul will have to say some hard things to the Corinthians in the pages of head, uh, head. So that's why he's beginning with this letter with surprising, well-rounded encouragement for the church. And he starts with their identity. In the letters opening to, Paul, uh, to the Corinthians, Paul encourages the Corinthians in their identity by addressing them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints in verse 2. And in this way, he reminds them that they have been set apart from God by God, that they are important and that they are unique because someone has declared them to be so. In the city of Corinth where they measured honor by the importance of the business or friends that you were attached to, to be set apart from the ultimate power by being set apart by God would have been the ultimate reassurance to one's identity. And because of this, because of this setting apart, it didn't matter what voices around them said about them or thought about them. To be sanctified in Christ, which by the way is past tense, would mean that the Corinthians and you and I have already received the ultimate word of approval, acceptance, and identity encouragement that we will ever need in our lives. And the fact that Paul said that they are called to be saints speaks volumes to the important understanding that the identity and purpose was externally bestowed upon them, not something internally mustered up relieving the need to work to build their identity or try to self-manufacture a sense of purpose. They have to receive all they have received graciously from God, and the same is from you. You have received all of this in Christ Jesus. And what's beautiful about our walk and our Christian life is that we're not just given an identity and a purpose, but we're also given the ability to live in that identity and purpose, as we see Paul encouraging the Corinthians with. This is not just some far-off wish. This is the reality for all you who are in Christ. He has given you the ability. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they are well-equipped to live in their identity. In our common experience, the thing that lies beyond the question of identity of who am I is the question of aptitude. What am I to do? And we see Paul encourage them in this manner. 
Aptitude is typically made up of a collection of gifts, skills, and abilities that you have been given, combined with the steps that you take to hone them in, to make them good. While still rooting their activity in the gracious activity of God, Paul speaks to the Corinthians as those who have been enriched in all speech and knowledge in verse 5. They are able to speak clear and convincing words about faith. They also uh, uh, also are knowledgeable, and they are not lacking in their grasp of the intellectual content of the Christian faith. And when you combine an identity with aptitude, what you get is a forward momentum. When you, uh, and it means you're heading somewhere. And the question is that hangs over our head as we have this forward momentum in life is where are we headed? What does my future hold? And Paul begins to encourage them in their trajectory. How can I know that my trajectory is worthwhile? It's reasonable for me to be hopeful about my destination. We all have that question. And Paul answers this question for the Corinthians when he claims that Jesus will sustain them until the end, verse 8. And in essence, he tells the Corinthians that they are on the right trajectory, that their lives are worthwhile, that the path that they are on is clearly going to lead them to the beautiful end that God has in store for them. It's the sure trajectory is rooted in what? The faithfulness of God, verse 9, who called them and crafted them for their purpose. In church, the same can be said about you. I don't know what you're all facing. I know a a lot of what you guys are facing But we're all facing storms at points in our lives. We're all facing the big question marks of what are next at points in lives. And here's the truth for you. Jesus will sustain you until the end. You can't mess up God's plans. Your sins, your wrongdoings are not big enough to do that. He will bring you back. He will restore you. He will sustain you until the end. The scriptures assure us that no matter the uncertainty of your or my present situation, our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain us, verse 8. And we will enjoy life with him because we are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, as seen in verse 9. And it's a beautiful promise, but it's also a surprising encouragement. Can you imagine receiving these first nine verses, a letter like this from one of your leaders? Of course, when we receive a letter from a superior, like a boss or a supervisor, we're hoping for encouragement to be in that letter. But we recognize that always in that level, our our encouragement is based and tethered to our level of performance. But Paul avoids uh, tying their identity, their aptitude, and their trajectory, trajectory to their performance, opting instead to encourage them flat out. He essentially saying, regardless of what you bring to the table, Corinth, God finds you incredibly valuable and worthy of investment. And on top of that, he's going to ensure that you are sustained and carried through to the joy-filled end with him in the future. Perhaps we expect to receive praise for a job well done. But no one expects to receive this kind of unconditional encouragement. Particularly not when they're conducting themselves the way that the Corinthians were. And it's at this point of the letter where we receive the tension of encouragement. 
In order to sense this tension, we just need to briefly look ahead in the letter. If, if it's your first time reading 1 Corinthians, you might think from these first nine verses, like, man, they're doing outstanding. This is the, the church. They're living in their God-given identity. Perhaps Paul will simply go on praising them for the rest of this letter. And maybe this is even what the original Corinthians were expecting as they read the first few sentences. Like, yeah, guys, we're doing good. Uh-oh, never mind. But the reality is that the church was tragically flawed. As soon as you leave verses 1 to 9, we will find a letter written to a church riddled with problems. If you look at your Bible that you have open before you, the next heading is probably says something like divisions in the church, right? Something along those lines. And the truth of the matter is that the Corinthian church is the last people in the world that should be getting this kind of encouragement in the introduction to their letter that Paul has given them. So let's consider the reality of what's happening in the Corinthian church. First, we are going to see that they're living contrary to their identity in Christ. Although we learned in verse 2 that their identity is objectively settled as sanctified, the rest of Paul's letter will show us that the subjective and experiential reality is far from saintly. Instead, the idols within the church are sadly overlapped with the idols that are found in the city of Corinth. For example, the idolatrous aspirationalism of the culture dominates the church. While they ought to be defined by their primary identification in Christ, they are more concerned with aligning themselves with particular Christian leaders, which has created stratification and fractionalism within the church. And we'll deal with that next week. And in their attempts to set themselves apart as honorable to the Lord, they have perverted the Lord's Supper, turning it into an occasion to separate the wealthy from the poor, and some were going hungry. They were eating more than just a little piece of bread. It was meals. The moral and ambiguous explorationalism of the city is also vividly present within the church. The fifth chapter makes it plain that unrestrained passions and unbridled lust and, and, uh, uh, that was characteristic of the city was alive and well in the church. To their shame, they were engaged in things that the pagans wouldn't even tolerate, as verse, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us. So we clearly see from Paul's opening in his letter to the Corinthians that they were a gifted church in verse 5. But the problem is, is that what happens even in modern churches today is that the Corinthians began to take pride in their gifts rather than the gift giver. They became prideful about their God-given aptitude. They looked at their aptitude, their natural ability to do something, and they put confidence and trust and pride in their own skills, in their own abilities. And they stripped their reliance upon God to supply all their needs for them and, and so that they could be a faithful gospel community. For instance, they were more concerned about eloquent speech and grasping true wisdom, uh, sorry, rather than grasping true wisdom of God, as we see in verses 1, 18 to 31. And rather than finding unity in the knowledge they have received, they now have divided minds. They are overly concerned with pedigree and position. As a result, they choose to lead with competence in place of character. Wow, so many churches still do this. You look at so many churches' elder boards, and they're just there because they're competent, but their character reeks. It's preferenced favoritism that riddles the church. And we are also guilty of that, giving preference, not our elders, but preference favoritism to so many people who have hold higher statuses in our eyes. And it's sin. 
This happens each time we unhinge our gifts from their God-given source and neglect to use them the way that he intended us to use them in community. Take an exceptionalist violinist for a, for a moment. Right? So she may be heads above the others in the orchestra that she plays in, and she's been able to pull off amazing technical feats. However, she becomes preoccupied with just her gift and ignores the responsibility of the conductor and the, author- and the community of the orchestra, she will end up playing something that draws attention to herself, but is out of tune with the rest of the community. She has a phenomenal gift in isolation, but her pride in her gift has hindered her from using it properly. And the end result uh, of leading with aptitude instead of identity is communal disharmony. And that puts the church on a dysfunctional trajectory. We see that after uh, the first nine verses that we are dealing with a very dysfunctional church. And at times on this journey, through this epistle, we wonder if it's all going to work out. It seems like it's game over at times. Like Paul, even in chapter 5, tells them to remove a member from their membership role because of the sin that they were committing. Now, it did have future restoration in mind, but it also aims at many other preposterous activities. It would seem that the objective reality by which Paul encourages and commends them is being called into question by the subjective experience of the church. How is it possible that people who receive the grace of God and who will persevere unto the end can live this way? And if all this is true, and if we see this reflected at times in our own lives, in our own churches, how can we uh, we believe the content of Paul's encouragement? If our subjective experience is one of dissatisfaction at times and disharmony at times, then how is it possible to have confidence in believing that encouragement is true for us today as well? Is there a way that we can reground our identity to rightly evaluate our aptitude, to live lives that are rightly aligned with the promised trajectory of perseverance? And the answer is yes, church. And it's grounded in the basis of Paul's encouragement. And the basis for the encouragement in the first nine verses is rooted in the Corinthians' past, present, and future. And all three of those things are, have been confirmed, declared, secured, enriched, and sustained in Christ. The first nine verses are extremely Christ-saturated. Just count it up yourself. And in the matter of nine verses, he mentions Christ six times. In nine verses... All of the realities that we have looked at at Paul's encouragement are not rooted in the Corinthians' performance. It can't be. But it's rooted in Christ Jesus. And in the same manner, the Christian identity, yours and mine, is not a self-made or self-maintained thing. Because we'll screw it up if it was. I know I would. It is the result of an outside action of God on our behalf. We are sanctified not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus, verse 2. Our minds need to be Christ-saturated, just like these first nine verses were. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves individually and as a community that our godliness, that our progression in becoming more like Christ, that our knowledge, our gifts, our perseverance, our forgiveness, our righteousness is all because of Christ Jesus, not because of how good you are. Not because you did a bunch of good works. 
Not because you're a CEO of some business here in town. Not because you have a lot of money. Not because you've memorized the Bible. Not because you serve every week at church. Not because you are here faithfully. But because Jesus, the perfect lamb, lived and died and rose on your behalf and my behalf so that you and I might be holy and acceptable to God. And we overcome because the work of Christ not ours. What the birth of, sorry, what the book of Corinthians should teach us over the next few months, we're going to be in this all the way to November, is that our status as sanctified and saints is not based upon our work, but is based upon the work of another. Our identity is sure because it was given to us by someone else. Our gifts are sufficient because they were given to us by the gift maker. And our future is secured because it has been prepared for us by one who holds the future in his hands. Because we live in mediocrity, this sounds kind of alien to us at times. The gospel is an anomaly to a culture that runs on self-definition, on self-help, and on self-realization. But for those of us who have reached, because I know I have, have reached the bitter end of identity building, competency maintenance, and future building, this is the greatest news imaginable. In the gospel, God declares us presentable before he ever even looks at a record. The gospel says, stop striving to build an identity because you have been given one free of charge because the striving of another upon the cross. You no longer have to live in order to build an identity. You can live into the identity that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O Lord, for a hard book, but a good book like 1 Corinthians. Father, may we go to this book with open hearts. Father, not just focus on all the bad, but Lord, pull out the gospel principles that Paul has clearly put into this book because he loves the Corinthians. And Lord, you love us. This is why we have this book within our Bible today. So that we too as a church, who sometimes because we're human, sidestep and we go the wrong directions and we get distracted and we do some things that maybe aren't that good. But Father, this is your word that is our true compass that guides us and leads us and keeps us grounded, O oh Lord. Father, may we see and receive these words. Father, not as a way where we can just clean up our behavior some more, but, Father, that we would be transformed. And, Father, for those who are here, as I get there at times too, Father, have I gone too far? Have I screwed up too much? Father, when I put my own trust in my gifts, when I make my identity about what I can do, oh God, forgive us when we do that. Teach us, oh Lord, that our true identity is found in Christ. And Father, when we live from that identity, we can walk upon the waves of our problems that, life come, that come to us in life. Because you, Lord, keep us from stumbling. Because of your track record, because of your performance, not mine and not ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that gift and that promise. And Lord, as we go to worship and song, God, may this become ever true to us. In Jesus' name, amen.